Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, September 14th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Fall is upon us, and that means updated COVID-19 booster shots are rolling out across the country. Stats' Helen Branswell joins us to discuss how the vaccination campaign might play out in the fourth winter of the pandemic. We also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including an IPO implosion, a debate at the FDA, and the ups and downs of a career in biotech. All that after a word from our sponsor. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of Stats First Opinion column and host of the First Opinion podcast. And I'm Jesse McQuarters, editor of Stat Brand Studio. We're excited that Stat is launching a brand new community only for our subscribers called Stat Plus Connect. It's an online home for discussion, news, job postings, workshops, and more, all centered around the life sciences and biomedical research. It's also a chance to peek behind the curtain at Stat and interact with our writers and staff. You're the people that really bring our great journalism and content to you every day. And in fact, I made a course on how to crack first opinion. I lay out the kinds of essays I'm looking for, my editorial process, some writing tips, and much more. And I actually made one about Stat Brand Studio, sharing a little bit about what the heck a brand studio is in the first place, but also some of the things we do to bring the content of our marketing partners to life. You know, it sounds like I'm going to have to hop on to take your course. And Tori, yours sounds amazing. So I'm going to definitely check out yours at connect.statnews.com. Well, fantastic. I'll see you on Stat Plus Connect. So Damien, you spent the day this week uh, watching an FDA advisory panel for an alnylam drug. Tell us about that panel and what happened. I did. I did. So the, the headline is that a group of independent advisors to the FDA voted nine to three that the benefits outweigh the risks when it comes to an alnylam treatment for, I'm getting into way too many proper nouns for this to be a headline, <laughs> um, for a once perceived to be rare, but now understood to be fairly common, progressive cardiovascular disease, um, which we can abbreviate as ATTRCM, the CM being cardiomyopathy. No, I like that for a headline. I think it really works. <laughs> yeah, it really sings. <laughs> um, so, right. So, so you know, the, the, the panel went in Al Nylum's favor, which generally that's how you want it to go when you're the drug industry sponsor of a new medicine. But the tone of the conversation over the course of about seven and a half hours was a lot more nuanced. The FDA, in its presentation of the data, seemed to take a fairly dim view of the evidence that alnylam had. There is no question as to whether alnylam's drug met the primary endpoint of the study, which was improving relative to placebo how far patients with this disease could walk over the course of six minutes in a year-long trial, which is to say that all of the patients in the study declined on that measure, but the patients who got the drug declined less than those who got placebo. However, that difference was just 14.7 meters at the median which zooming out, everybody at the beginning of the trial could walk about 360 odd meters over the course of six minutes. So, you know, that, that 14 meter difference, while statistically significant, was, as it turned out, pretty debatable with respect to how beneficial or how meaningful that would be to patients in the study. And the independent experts really 
<laughs> probed this and dragged into it and looked at other data, etc. The gist is, Alilum is likely, it seems, to win this FDA approval, which would be an expansion of the approval that already applies to this drug, which is approved for a different form of the same disease uh, that doesn't affect the heart. So, that, so that's interesting, Damien. You know, I, I actually was talking to, or not talking to, I was texting with someone else, someone I know who was watching the same panel that you were watching. And this was before the vote. And they were like, and I asked them how it was going. And they said, wow, this is really negative. Everyone, the FDA, the advisors are really down on this. I think that the vote is going to be negative. Obviously, the vote wasn't negative. So is this a case where, I mean, do you think, I mean, I know we we generally see these things when we see a numerical vote, like a nine to three vote in favor, and then, okay, that means that we'll get approved. But do you think that that, I mean, is there a chance that the FDA doesn't approve this? I would be surprised. Although that being said, this panel, unlike others that I've watched, going into the vote, I truly had no idea how it was going to go based, you know, to your point earlier on, on the tone of the conversation. And one thing we haven't mentioned, but there was a major topic of discussion uh, in the panel, is that there is already an approved medicine for this condition. It's a drug from Pfizer. Uh, it's an oral medicine that in a different clinical trial had not only a greater benefit on the six-minute walk test, but also had a benefit on mortality and hospitalization, which in fairness, Alnylam's trial was not designed to demonstrate. The other caveat there is by virtue of this uh, Pfizer trial being conducted, I think about six years ago now. As I mentioned before, this was perceived to be a rarer disease than we now understand it to be. And because of the basically methods of diagnosis were less sophisticated back then than they are now, the patients enrolled in the study were sicker, were more advanced in the disease. So the difference from placebo was more dramatic, probably as a result. So getting to your question about would the FDA actually reject this given all of this, I still think the answer is probably no, despite the FDA's tone being pretty negative um, in their view of the data, largely because Alnylam has played by the rules. They ran a study that was designed in accordance with FDA guidance, and they hit the primary endpoint. The conversation on you know clinical relevance is likely, I think, um, going to be one left to physicians and patients after this medicine wins approval. And I think one of the major reasons for that is that its safety profile was acceptable to everyone who commented on it. And then beyond that, it is not exactly an investigational drug. It has been approved for the other uh, form of this disease for about five years now. So the FDA seemed very comfortable with its safety in that it has been out in the real world, not hurting anyone for all that time. The question is, why, based on every the whole conversation we just had, why would someone opt for this drug over the Pfizer drug, which likewise has already been on the market? And that, that is another conversation. But then zooming out even further, there's an argument that this doesn't matter that much to alnylam. And here's why. So this is an intravenous medicine. It's called patisseran. Alnylam has a subcutaneous version, basically works the same way, but it can be dosed with a tiny needle under the skin instead of through an infusion. Um, already in development. That subcutaneous version is approved for the other disease we mentioned, and it is currently in a phase three trial for the cardiomyopathy presentation, the more common version of this disease. If that trial, which is longer and is designed to measure mortality and hospitalization, works, if that trial is successful and all of them can win approval for that version of the drug, that's the one that at least Wall Street is fixated on because it's more likely to be a commercial success by virtue of being easier to take and having better data. And if we if we zoom out even further, Damien, then there's the bridge bio. <laughs> right. Right. So now yeah. we are 30,000 feet in the air and there is another Donning oral oxygen medicine. masks. Here we go. 
<laughs> well, no, wait. Can I bring us to 100,000, you know, miles up in the air? Yeah, uh, let's do it. This, <laughs> well, uh, the, the kind of the, what it sounds like the core of the debate was for this, you know, this hearing this week, um, the, like the six minute walk test as an end point, like, is this, is this just kind of like becoming routine where like that's the FDA standard, but like all of the experts, you know, really question its statistical significance of like how a drug makes somebody perform on a walk test or like are we going to like is there a point on the horizon where the FDA kind of sits down and is like, huh, maybe we should rethink this endpoint because it just seems like there are so many drugs where, you know, we continue to debate the significance of like a walk test and like what that how that translates to actual patient benefit in the real world. Yeah, it's a fair question. And I think to the extent that at the panel, uh, the experts were picking apart the six-minute walk test, it wasn't so much as to whether the test itself tells you anything valuable about you know whether a given intervention is helping anyone, but rather just that the magnitude of the benefit of the L-nylon drug, the 14.7 meters, whether that itself uh, was was legible in terms of a benefit. The um, benefit in, in the Pfizer study was more like 30 meters, which has all the caveats that I mentioned before about being a different population. But the experts seem to kind of say that, yeah, you know, 30 odd, 25 meters is probably kind of toward the floor of what they would consider impressive um, on a six minute walk test. And then at the same time, it is it's not a surrogate marker per se, because it is real and it is measurable, but it's meant to be something that points toward cardiovascular function, not getting out of breath, having the ejection fraction in your heart, which are other measurable things. So, you know, going from, I think we reached the moon, um, going back to Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> I, I think, um, I think the six, to, to Allison's point, I think the six minute walk test is like the weird Barbie of drug development. It's the weird Barbie. <laughs> you like go up on the little hill and you like enter her little, yeah, her little dream weird house and she's just, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, that feels that feels like an apt comparison. <laughs> but, you know, speaking of the six minute walk test and, and Adam, to your point about this bridge biomedicine, which is also an oral drug, that drug failed to make a real difference on the six minute walk test over the course of 12 months in a study that reported out now about two years ago. The second phase of that study was much longer and designed to measure harder endpoints like mortality and hospitalization. And that study was a success. We learned in July and BridgeBio presented more detailed data uh, at a conference last month such that the bridge medicine, uh, which I believe they expect to file for FDA approval this year, is expected to win that approval sometime next year, at which point it would have on its label this benefit on mortality and hospitalization that the L-nylum drug would not have by virtue of that. And so we just kind of get into a point where maybe not to get mired down in the details of this precise moment, in the next two years, it is possible that there will be four approved medicines for this uh, disease that was once thought to be rare and once had zero, the Pfizer medicine, um, the alnylam intravenous drug that we've just talked about, and also the subcutaneous version, and then finally, the bridge bio oral medicine. And that's where the story will get really interesting. But there are a lot of cards that need to be turned over between now and then before we could really delve into it. All right, moving on from cardiomyopathy. Let's talk about uh, Bluebird Bio slash 270 Bio, the latter of which was spun out of uh, Bluebird Bio and uh, had a reduction in force, as they say, restructuring announcement uh, this week, uh, which also included, uh, I guess, the exit of CEO Nick Leshley. 
Allison, you wrote about that this week. Yeah, it was an interesting development. Um, Adam, I know that you've written previously about, you know, Bluebird Bio and their like decision to, you know, a couple of years ago to basically split their company in two and to have Bluebird kind of retain the the gene therapy pipeline, um, bring in a new CEO and have this other company, um, you know, 270 Bio spin out with Nick at the helm and kind of pursue their oncology pipeline. And, you know, I think, you know, you, you've pointed out in the past, there's been a lot of questions about like how that would actually work. And Bluebird itself has had its own kind of, you know, developmental struggles. Um, but this week we got a little bit of an answer as to like how 270 Bio was going to fare. They announced they were cutting 40% of their workforce. And as you noted, Nick, who has been, I mean, the the person, not only at Bluebird, but at 270 Bio, really kind of, you know, the the whole face of this venture um, is is part, will be parting ways with the company and they will be bringing on a new CEO. And it's, I mean, really kind of the not only like an end of an era for, you know, Nick kind of stepping away from not only his you know first baby, but his, you know, second. But um you know, a real inflection point for the company. They also kind of announced that they're allocating less money to a couple of drug candidates. You know, they're trying to conserve cash. Um, uh, yeah, a little little bit of a um, bump in the road for them. So this, so this does give us an opportunity to assess the, the, the biotech career of Nick Leslie. Uh, someone, I, you know, he's a very lightning rod, uh, it, it, within the, mm-hmm. within the sector, I would say probably, uh, well known for wearing, uh, blue sneakers, always wearing sort of his signature, like, you know, Steve Jobs has his black turtleneck. <laughs> Nick Leslie had his blue sneakers that he wore everywhere. Um, when he was the, when he was the chief bluebird officer, he, he also like. I was going to say his creative titles, yes. his title at 270, like he was CEO, but then he was, uh, it was. Chief Kairos <laughs> officer, whatever chief the. Kairos, G- chief Kairos. Yeah. Officer. W- right. We all, yeah. we all rolled our eyes at that. But anyway, but, but seriously though, I, you know, Nick, as you mentioned, Allison, you know, bluebird was Nick's baby. He was the founding CEO. Obviously he had a, he had a biotech and VC career before that. He was with Third Rock. Uh, he was with Millennium Pharmaceuticals, but, you know, he was sort of the founding or, you know, the the, the CEO, the most well-known CEO at, at at Bluebird. And it's, you know, it's really interesting kind of thinking about his career because I've covered Bluebird and covered Nick, you know, for just for years, ever since the company was founded. And, you know, what's interesting about it is that if you look at them objectively, you know, if you look at Bluebird, they, I mean, they achieved a lot. You know, they, yeah, they have an approved uh, you know, medicine on the gene therapy, Europe. on the gene therapy side, rare disease gene therapy side, you know, they, they, you know, it took a long time and there were some lots of ups, ups and downs, but, you know, uh, successfully developed a gene therapy for beta thalassemia and what seems like will probably also likely succeed in sickle cell disease. Uh, you know, so that was that's pretty a landmark achievement. And then on the oncology side, you know, they developed a CAR T therapy uh, for multiple myeloma. So, you know, that, that's a, you know, that's a remarkable achievement if you think about it. Um, but from a business and operational perspective, and, and maybe from a, an investment or shareholder perspective, it was kind of a dumpster fire 
<laughs> to be I don't know how else to describe it. I think I I think I did sort of describe that describe the company that way in in a few tweets. Um, you know, Nick is one of the few people out there that that won my that I that I named best CEO uh, way back, and then named worst CEO after that. So <laughs> I think it's it's tough because I think you know from a you know Bluebird is you know Bluebird is a weakened is in a weakened state. Uh, you know, and I think there's questions about whether or not they ultimately survive. And I think 270 Bio, you know, they are also in a weakened state, and and it's hard to imagine that they're going to be very competitive. Uh, you know, oncology is really hard. Uh, yeah. So. You know, Nick. You know, you you talk to investors about Nick, and you know, and and a lot of people just sort of shake their heads, uh, you know, and, and wonder how someone who you know who from a science perspective did a lot, but uh, other ways uh, just didn't really meet expectations. It. I kept on thinking this week back to, um, like you know, this Bluebird split. You know, splitting the company in two was was kind of pitched as like a, oh, it will help us better focus. You know, uh, we will have a team that will be fully devoted to gene therapy, and then we'll have this separate company that will be really fully devoted to oncology. Um, and it, that split kind of came a couple of years after this company, Ironwood, decided, like, also announced that it would split in two. And Ironwood, similarly, like both arms of the company have struggled in kind of this post-split era. And I mean, their CEO, you know, longtime CEO Peter Hecht, similarly, you know, has um, kind of, you know, uh, had struggles with the company. Um, the, the idea, it almost feels like we've we've kind of resolved this like weird question from the like you know, height of the biotech period where everything was so lush that it was like, well, yeah, no, we, we can easily like, yeah, we could totally split a company in two. There's enough money to do it and it will be better. But as you point out, like oncology is so hard and, you know, I mean, gene therapy equally as hard. It, it, this whole story feels to me like it reasserts that like there even though we're in like the the era of biotechnology and and we think that we know so much more about this science that operationally you know from a regulatory sense from a scientific sense this is still too difficult to kind of you know not have diversity in your pipeline and to you know to focus too much on a couple of of assets could really spell doom for your company in the long run and it's also an illustration of how fast the science and the technology move because you know if you think about mm -hmm. bluebird back in the day you know they you know their gene therapies are based on lentiviral delivery and that was sort of cutting edge back then and and now we've gone to uh you know well AAV which you know obviously has had mixed success i think but but more maybe more importantly we've gone we you know crispr has come along uh and so yeah. now you look at you know, you look at uh, genome editing treatments that are using CRISPR, and I think people are sort of more excited about that. And then even on the CAR-T side, you know, while, you know, while 270 Bio, well, Bluebird slash 270 Bio were successfully developing this CAR-T and multiple myeloma, you know, another another company with, you know, from China had come along and, and developed one that was more effective, you know, and then they ultimately were partnered up with J and J and that's out in the market and it's a you know it's a meaningfully it's a meaningfully better 
uh, therapy, and it's hard to compete when you, when you know you you don't have the same efficacy. So yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm sure I, I don't know if if Dick Leslie's biotech career is over. I mean, he's gonna stay on the board I at 270, <laughs> and you know, he maybe he surfaces somewhere else. Um, it, I imagine it would be hard for him to sort of get to get uh, investors to rally around him these days. Um, uh, you know, just given the fact that the stock performance of the companies that he ran uh, relative to the you know the amount of money that Nick uh, extracted from the publicly traded companies that he ran as, as, you know, again, as all CEOs and executives do and cashing out their options and the like. But uh, yeah, you know, it's a, it is sort of an end of an era and it was uh, it's a, it was a good time to kind of think about it uh, now that, now that he's stepping down. So I learned this week that there are upward of 70 would be Wigovi type medicines in development across the pharmaceutical industry, seeking to cash in on the explosion of demand and interest and scientific validity of new weight loss treatments. And I learned that, uh, Allison, from a tracker that you and our colleague Elaine Chen put together that aims to corral and keep tabs on this, um, well, mind-boggling, frankly, uh, explosion in demand. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we I know we really have set ourselves up for um, a nice little... Uh challenge maintaining this database. Um, but no, Elaine and I and our, our colleague Emery um, put together this resource that hopefully, you know, readers will find useful to kind of survey like, okay, outside of, you know, Wigovi, outside of, you know, Munjaro, what's happening in obesity drug development, which is entering like a really interesting phase. And we're already starting to see acquisitions of like, early stage drug candidates that are, you know, also targeting obesity sometimes from other mechanisms. So we have all of this data that we've collected and, and have put into a tool for for people to use um, to kind of track what's happening, how things are progressing in the clinical trial, to, you know, landscape, and um, what companies you should be keeping an eye on next, particularly because, you know, one thing we, we highlighted, um, experts told us, you know, at this point, so it's kind of you have you know, obviously Lilly and Novo are really leading the pack, and they're already acquiring other other candidates. Um, but there's a lot of interest, and there's a lot of pharma companies that you know could could want to make the jump in, and they're going to probably want to make the jump in with a clinical asset. So it's a tool to keep an eye on. It's available at the Stat website. Um, please uh, let us know what you think of it. Let's talk about COVID-19. On Monday, the FDA approved two updated COVID booster shots. These are the messenger RNA-based vaccines made by Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna, respectively, that are meant to bolster protection against new strains of the virus. On Tuesday, a panel of advisors to the CDC voted 13 to 1 to recommend the updated COVID boosters for all Americans six months and older. Hours later, CDC Director Mandy Cohen signed off on the recommendation. So as we record this podcast on Thursday morning, the shots are now becoming available at doctor's offices, clinics, and pharmacies. The arrival of updated COVID boosters come at a time when case counts are rising. And like all things related to COVID these days, there's debate 
and disagreement over who most needs the shots and how much protection they offer. Joining us to discuss this is Stat's very own Helen Branswell, who has been covering this issue now. Well, let's not count the years. Helen, welcome <laughs> back to the podcast. It seems forever. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. <laughs> So uh, kind of playing into the history, Helen, like what's the state of of COVID-19 in the U.S. right now? And should we expect it to, you know, kind of create another cold weather holiday surge like we've seen in years past? The status seems to be that, as as you guys mentioned, cases are picking up. Um, That isn't super surprising at this point. This virus hasn't yet sort of settled into a kind of seasonality that we associate with a lot of respiratory pathogens. Like, you know, flu typically hits from late November till probably late March, but really only uh, then. Um, RSV sometimes around the same time. With COVID, we've had sort of irregular um uh, sort of spread at times and, and people are really waiting to see whether or not it sort of settles into something regular. One of the things we have seen in the past few years is towards the end of the summer, cases tick up. Um, you know, is that because, uh, hot weather and warm places, people are indoors with air conditioning? Is that because kids are starting to go back to school in the southern parts of the country? Um, not clear, but, um, but we do see that and, and we are seeing it this year. It is important to note though, that, um, the sort of, even though the headlines would suggest that there's, you know, been a surge, this surge is nothing like the surges of previous years. I mean, it's about a fifth of the amplitude of what was happening in 2021 and about less than half of, you know, what was happening last fall. So, so it does appear to be, um, you know, it, it, it does seem like we and this virus are kind of getting more used to one another. The recently approved vaccines uh, are updated versions of the mRNA shots we've had since 2021. Um, Helen, how are they different and what kind of data do we have to support their efficacy? So one of the, the ways they're different, the, the really primary way is this is the first time the shot does not include antigen to protect against what is called the Wuhan strain, the strain that of um SARS-2 that first emerged from China in 2019, late 2019, early 2020. Uh, That's always been in the vaccine up until now. And uh, FDA decided to tell manufacturers to take it out. That virus has long gone. You know, the, the current versions of the virus have mutated far past that. And there's no... The, the thought is that there's no point at there, but no benefit at this point to retaining that in the shot. So this one is a, a monovalent again, meaning it only targets one strain and it targets something called XBB.1.5 that was circulating a lot in the spring. Um, the, it was selected as a target it, at a meeting in FDA meeting in June. Since then, the virus has continued to evolve, but mostly 
Um, the viruses that are around are offshoots of that one. There is a new var- subvariant called uh, BA.2.86 that people are quite concerned about. It doesn't seem to be taking off like really fast, whether it will in the future, don't know. But, um, you know, preliminary testing seems to suggest that this vaccine raises neutralizing antibodies against both, you know, the evolved XBB strains and would offer protection against this. Whether it's protection against infection, that seems unlikely. But, you know, with these vaccines at this point, we know that their major benefit is protection against severe disease. And the thinking is that this shot will help people whose immunity might be waning to stave off severe disease and hospitalization. So as we mentioned before, the advisors to the CDC voted overwhelmingly in favor of recommending these boosters. It was 13 to 1, um, but there is that one. That no vote came from Pablo Sanchez, who is a professor of pediatrics at Ohio State. What were his reasons for voting no on this? He's a pediatrician, and he's always been concerned about the um, evidence of myocarditis and pericarditis that have, you know, the cases that have arisen among young people, typically teenage boys, after they get the mRNA vaccines. Um, and I think that's still his concern. He's not suggesting that, you know, older people shouldn't get this vaccine. I think that his thinking was more that um, the evidence may not satisfy him. He may not be satisfied that there's enough evidence that the shot should be recommended for everybody. Um but, uh, he, you know, he was outvoted and, and they have been recommended for everyone. Um, it will, of course, remain to be seen what uptake is like. It has been pretty uh, m- modest is probably even exaggerated uh, at this point. With each successive shot, you know, fewer and fewer people have been getting vaccinated. And Helen, as we noted, uh, the recommendations, the approvals here are for the mRNA-based vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech, and and uh, Moderna. But Novavax is also developing a vaccine, but they are not included. Uh, what's going on with Novavax these days? That's a very interesting question that I would love to have an answer to. And if any of your <laughs> listeners know, they should please get in touch. Um, their vaccine takes longer to make than the mRNA vaccines. And so previously... If something like this had arisen, you might have thought it was about uh, just the fact that it's a slower process to make the protein uh, subunit vaccines. But that doesn't appear to be the case here. Um, what I'd heard is that their paperwork is not 100% in order or that the, there are issues in, in regarding paperwork with FDA. Um, it's not yet clear when they will be ready. It may... I've heard be October before they get their authorization, but, you know, we'll have to see. Yeah, it's curious. I mean, to your point about the Novavax situation, they, at least to my reading of it, their vaccine would be or could be subject to the CDC recommendation we were talking about, but it did not, unlike the Moderna and Pfizer ones, receive FDA approval because of this regulatory issue. And curiously, um, at the time of that, Novavax said that, um, basically, it was on the FDA that they had 
done their part and that they were just waiting to hear back from the agency. But then at the CDC meeting, uh, a representative of the FDA said all questions on the matter should be deferred to Novavax, which uh, so (laughs) to your point earlier, if anybody can explain this, that would be delightful. But there is also the other valence of, you know, the business angle of this. As we mentioned before, the waning demand for booster shots has meant a decimation in the revenue um, for companies selling these vaccines, which, you know, Pfizer, very large company, um, and Moderna and BioNTech, smaller companies, but they made quite a bit of money during the acute part of the pandemic, or whatever the right phrase is, the part at which um, demand for these doses was much higher. Novavax famously missed out on that part of the pandemic, um, by and large, and is counting on for its business to continue, for its solvency to be preserved, there to be a robust demand for its booster shots um, in the out years, in the latter years of our COVID-19 experience. And so this, I don't know if hiccup is the right word, we don't really know what the deal is with the Novavax vaccine, but it has much more acute implications for its business um, than it does for the other vaccine manufacturers involved uh, in in COVID-19. It will be interesting to see what the uptake of this uh, COVID boosters are. Um, I don't know, Helen, you saw, I, I did a Twitter poll, which is obviously the most unscientific way <laughs> of, of measuring anything. <laughs> Go on Twitter, uh, get the truth. Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, my, I did a pretty <laughs> substantial poll and it, it came out like two thirds people said they were not going to get the booster and one third said that they were going to get the booster. And, and you thought, I think I, I saw you react to that. You thought that that was like, that was probably overly optimistic, even even one third of, of you know eligible people getting it. Yeah, it really depends on who you're polling, right? I mean, the last booster, the one that came out last fall, 17% of eligible people got it. Wow. Uh, when you look at the 65 and older crowd, it was 43%. And in, you know, that's... That's really the group that you want to get it, but that's not high for for people who are in a you know reasonably who still have a, a some risk of of severe illness and death from COVID. Um, yeah, it, it's I I think at this point in our history we're at a place where there are people who want to be vaccinated regularly and uh, maybe even a couple of times a year. But I think they're a small portion of the population. And I think a lot of people feel like they are getting on with life. And, uh, you know, if you have, if you catch COVID, then you, you, you know, there's no point in getting a vaccination for a couple of months. So you really wouldn't get a take. And so, um, and you do have hybrid immunity, which is thought to be uh, more protective. So I, I think, you know, there are people who are feeling like their future probably doesn't include regular COVID shots, but there are people who who definitely do want them. And some of them will have been disappointed by what happened on Monday. Um, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but um, in the lead up to uh, this process, um, HHS had had a presser for uh, like an off the record press conference for uh, reporters. And during it, uh, somebody from the FDA, who I'm not allowed to name, had said provision had been made for um, people who are 65 and older and people who are immunocompromised to have two shots a year uh, to try try to counteract waning um, waning immunity. But that's not what ACIP approved. A- ACIP, and that's the group that 
says how vaccines ought to be used, agreed that people who are moderately or severely immunocompromised should have the opportunity to have a second dose at some point, you know, a little bit further on from their first dose. But they did not uh, extend that offering to people who are 65 and older. They said at this point there isn't evidence to support it. They'll review the epidemiology and um, and how effective the vaccine appears to be, and they may revisit the decision later, but right now that's not going to be an option for people who are 65 and older. What do you make of that move, Helen? I mean, on... In some ways, it feels like, you know, the immunocompromised population, I mean, generally is the are the ones that at this point are kind of like still trying to, you know, kind of scream from the rooftops that we should be like cognizant of COVID and that we should be taking precautions and that people should be getting vaccinated and boosted. It was I mean, were they carved out in the ultimate ACIP, you know, uh, you know, recommendations simply because they are the most vocal of those groups? No, I don't think that that's the reason. I think the reason is because it's evident that, you know, people who have um, immunocompromising conditions or who are, whose immune systems have been depressed because they're going through chemotherapy, for instance, that they are at greater risk and they do not get as much benefit from the vaccines as, as other people do. I mean, you may recall way back in, I think it was the summer of 2021, um, back when everybody thought that you would only maybe need two shots of COVID vaccine and you'd be fully vaccinated, they quick they quickly added a third dose for people who were immunocompromised. Excuse me, they quickly added a third dose for people who were immunocompromised because it was clear that they just weren't getting the same benefit and that they didn't have the same protection and they were kind of sitting ducks. Um, you know, it's been a uh, that population has been a source of real concern for the ACAP throughout the the whole process. It does sound like things have improved, that people who are, you know, that the data surrounding sort of protection of people who are immunocompromised is not as dire as it was. So that's a good thing. But I think there's still really an interest in um, offering that community of people some additional protection. Hmm. Well, Helen, thank you as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you're up for the COVID booster. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. See you next week.